0: Uh, today I've got, tonight I've got uh, David J. Brown, um, author of many books. Uh, the book that drew me to him is a book called uh, Dreaming Wide Awake, Lucid Dreaming, Shamanic Healing and Psychedelics. Uh, all things I'm very interested in. Uh, I think that it's going to be a challenge to talk about all of the amazing and fascinating elements of this book uh, in just one hour. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we may even do this again sometime if their interest is there, which I believe it will be with our community. So. Uh, David, uh, who are you? Uh, what are you known for? Uh, what are your interests?
1: And what are you interested in most right now? <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that that kind introduction, Zach. Well, um, I'm a, I'm a science writer primarily. Uh, my background is in uh, psychobiology and behavioral neuroscience. Um, I was trained as a neuroscientist at uh, New York University and the University of Southern California. Um, I was engaged in uh, pretty conventional neuroscience research um, for the first uh, 10 years of my academic career um, since then i've become a uh, independent researcher i worked with um, british biologist rupert sheldrake um, for five years i did all the california based research for his uh his books dogs that know when their owners are coming home in the sense of being Scared at um, we looked at the unconventional powers of animals uh, what people generally call psychic phenomena. Um, I worked with uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is uh, an organization that's um, are providing research and studies to help make psychedelic drugs like MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD into legally prescribable uh, prescription drugs. Um, and I'm the author of uh, 16 books about the evolution of consciousness, about increasing health, about lucid dreaming about visionary art and uh, a couple of science fiction novels and um, uh, my latest book uh, the one that i I just finished was uh, about um, women of visionary art and we interviewed uh, um, 18 different women from around the world about their experiences with uh, their mystical experiences their psychedelic experiences their dream experiences and how they influence their, their artwork so so my work spans all these these different areas i'm very interested in the relationship between science and art and science and spirituality and the interface between science and psychedelics and uh and the exploration of uh, altered states of consciousness are some of the things that have fascinated me over the years
0: beautiful thank you david and uh I think that kind of what we want to cover today, um, because there's so much, so much, so much experience that you have and so much knowledge that you have. I see I'm friends with you on Facebook. So it's almost daily that I see you're posting other books. And I'm, I'm wondering if part of what you've done in all of these journeys is like figured out a way to somehow clone yourself, like in that movie, The Prestige, (laughs) and somehow like you have clones writing these books, it like wouldn't surprise me because I see all these books coming in that you're reading, plus you're writing books. I think you've written more books than the average person that graduates from high school reads after high school. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. So uh, I think the goal or the outcome for this talk is a dialogue on exploring the gateways to the ecstatic. Um, and with that, uh, what do you consider the ecstatic realm
1: or the ecstatic? That's great. I haven't been asked that question before. It's the first time, so I'm going to have to think it up on the spot. Um, my very first <laughs> Great. Book, um, my very book, my very my very first uh, book, Brainchild, was um, if you read the back cover, the um, one of the descriptions of the book was that it was a, it was about how the evolution of life was all geared towards ecstasy. That that was the ultimate goal of evolution was to to learn to live in, in ecstasy. Um, ecstasy meaning uh, ecstasis, meaning uh, not static, meaning in movement. Um, and in connection with uh, something much greater than yourself, where you, uh, the boundaries between yourself and the rest of the world and other people dissolve. Um, and with that comes a kind of uh, incredibly pleasurable, incredibly blissful um, feeling of blending and blurring with everything else. And oftentimes with that, not only is the, the experience um, incredibly um ecstatic, to use uh, no other better word, but with it often comes revelation and insight and uh, knowledge and um, all types of uh, alternative and new perspectives on the world that uh, that weren't available before. So um, ecstasy is, I think, one of the goals of uh, lucid dreaming, of psychedelic experiences, shamanic experiences but uh, but only as a stepping stone to uh, to higher levels of knowledge and reality and healing and creativity and, and all those things. It has practical applications, uh, ecstasy. And I think that uh, one of the problems with our planet right now is that we don't have enough ecstasy. We're ecstasy-deprived beings. So uh, anything that, uh, that you and your wonderful group can do to help promote more ecstasy in the world, I think is a, is a good thing. Am I somewhere? Am I on the right track?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You answered it better than I could have hoped. So that's one of the most elaborate answers to what is the ecstatic that I've heard. I'm right now looking at a book called Shamanism: Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy by Murcia Aliade, um, that I was turned on to by Michael Mead when I met him here when he came to do a workshop in Salt Lake City, and I wanted to touch about what do you think it is that's keeping people from being drawn to ecstatic states of consciousness or blocking them from experiencing the ecstasy that. Uh, would essentially be their birthright, you would think. What do you think the block is for people?
1: Well, I think that there's a tremendous fear um, in the ruling elite of society of people reaching alternative states of consciousness. I think that there's uh, there's tremendously, a huge amount of um, cultural inhibition that there's uh, that the people in power are afraid. The very reason that psychedelics Became illegal in the 60s is because people were afraid of, of people turning on, reaching these ecstatic states, and then with them, you know, came the the dropping out of material society and consumer society, and the lack of interest in uh, in the military, um, a lot of the things that the the, the ruling elite, um, you know, uh, have you know value. So I think that uh, the culture has been designed to try to keep people in a kind of hypnotic trance you know, we're, we're, we're hypnotized from a young age with television commercials and things to try to keep us in a consumer-oriented um, culture. We're told that psychedelic drugs make people go crazy. We're told that our, our dreams are, 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 you know, are something to be ignored. People are saying, oh, that's just a dream, instead of really paying attention to what's going on in their unconscious. So I think that there's a, a deliberate, uh, agenda by the ruling class to try to keep people in in lower states of consciousness. Um, however, you know if you look at the history of human civilization, there's been a steady. Increase in uh, people reaching higher and higher states of consciousness, and I think right now we're we're at a very very crucial period in our, our evolution because of um, what's happening with climate change right now, um, and I think that that's why um, these uh, these prohibitions have been, list- been lifted. I mean, psychedelic drugs, for example, have been you know in the mainstream media have been ridiculed and ignored and demonized now for you know for so many years. And look, in the last 10 years, suddenly there's this renaissance of, you know, positive articles and positive research, and, you know, and suddenly cannabis is being legalized in different places. And I think the reason that people are finally opening up to this, and, and you know, believe me, the ruling class is still trying to suppress this, but it's just, there's no way at this point for them to stop it. There's such a powerful momentum. And I think it's because there's something deep inside of us in our DNA and uh, in the essence of our being that is recognized recognizing that the only way to save ourselves from from climate change is by expanding our consciousness one of the things that uh, psychedelics ayahuasca and magic mushrooms in particular are, are known to do are, are to increase ecological awareness to make people more aware of their environment uh, people uh, many environmental activists uh, can trace their original inspiration back to uh, doing uh, mushrooms or, or ayahuasca so I think that uh, Despite the fact that there's been a tremendous attempt to suppress, you know, suppress to the extent of, you know, locking people in jail cells. I mean, putting Timothy Leary in a jail cell. They were so scared of, of the, the messages that you know that he was uh, that he was transmitting. Yeah, the most dangerous you know. man alive at one point he was declared, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, by Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man alive. Why was he so dangerous? Well, he was so dangerous because he was giving out information to help liberate people's minds from the chains of the culture. And I think that uh, you know this is just an, an inevitable process right now. And despite the suppression that's gone on and the attempt to make these things illegal and the attempts to try to. Uh, Demonize and ridicule people who have advanced with these things. I think despite that, there's an enormous renaissance right now, and there's no way to stop the momentum. And psychedelic drugs are being mainstreamed. MAPS is uh, turning MDMA into a legal prescription drug. Psilocybin mushrooms uh, look like they're going to be legal in Colorado and Oregon. They're going to be on the uh, ballot. They seem to be following the pathway of medical marijuana in terms of their legalization. So I think that there's a, an incredible uh, attempt by by the forces you know inside of us, the deep intuitive genetic forces that are trying to help us help us evolve and become more ecologically aware, so that we don't uh, we don't all uh, drown when the, uh, when the polar ice caps melt and the oceans become too acidic for anything to live in.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine. Um, I, I met him yeah. actually at Esalen, and we've become friends since then. Charles Eisenstein just wrote a really beautiful book called Climate, A New Story. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that or if you're familiar with Eisenstein's uh, work at all. Uh, But uh, it reminds me of a Philip K. Dick quote uh, that says, to fight the empire is to be infected by its derangement. This is a paradox. Whoever defeats a segment of the empire becomes the empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. Thereby it becomes its enemies. That was by Philip K. Dick, the author who also used a lot of psychedelics and different types of, um, I guess you would say medicines over the course of his life. And I think that what I wanted to touch on is, um, do you believe that that the ruling class is somehow this enlightened class and they're aware of all of what the healing modality and power of, of psychedelics and altered states of consciousness are, or do they just fear that it's going to interrupt what they have, what little they have? Are they... A, uh, like a systemic, like a part of the broken system itself rather than conscious
1: perpetuator uh, perpetuators of the system? Well, I, I don't know that the ruling class, quote unquote, is completely unified on this. Um, when we say the root ruling class or the aristocracy, um, you know, we mean the, basically the wealthiest people in, in America, the people who have the most financial and political power. I don't know that they're they're unified on this. Certainly, you know the 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 Trump administration, Republicans, and most of the Democrats, and you know and and, and, in Capitol Hill, um, seem to be completely opposed to the expansion of consciousness and try to stop it at at every corner they can. Uh, There are, however, um, plenty of uh, wealthy people are uh, donating to MAPS to try to uh, get psychedelic drugs um, uh, turned into legal medicines uh, to make them more available uh, to the average people. So there, there, there's there's different forces operating. Um, there's you know there's some some people I think in the ruling class that are trying to uh, to help um, humanity evolve, and there are others uh, that are more selfishly uh, have more selfish intent. Interesting.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And I wanted to touch a little bit, David, on what you spoke at at the beginning, because a, a large portion of this book is dedicated to dreaming and lucid dreaming. Um, and when people hear dreaming, I, at least when I used to hear dreaming, at first I thought, well, dreams are just that other thing that happens at night. It's just kind of this silly recreation that it just really doesn't have meaning. Uh, but at the same time, paradoxically, Martin Luther King had a dream that changed the world. And then at the same time, later on, I started to listen to uh, early on in my kind of separation from my upbringing, which was kind of like fundamentalist Christian upbringing, originally Russian Orthodox and then kind of fundamental Christian upbringing. And what really kind of was the medicine for that was when I came across someone named Krishna Krishnamurti, which it kind of his opinion of dreams, which affected me for a long time was that, you know, dreams are kind of rubbish Was his opinion. Uh, it's kind of like, If you're not conscious throughout the day and aware, then your dreams are just kind of play out whatever happened in the day. And for some reason, in hearing that, and really kind of holding that to be truth in in my own life, my dreams actually started to become rubbish, (laughs) as as strange as that sounds. So I wanted to know if you could touch a little bit on the importance of dreams to you and what some of the beliefs about dreams are and kind of what the science has to say about that. I know it's a big topic, maybe like a five minute type of explanation on that. (laughs)
1: Gosh, let me see. I think there was like a couple of questions in there. Let me see if they can if they can take them one at a time. Um, yes. Uh, in, in, in terms of, I mean, people are conditioned from a very young age. I mean, what happens when a, when a child has has a nightmare and they wake up, mommy, mommy, crying? I mean, the first thing the mother says to the child is, "Oh, honey, that was just a dream, just a dream." You know, in other words, negating any importance, negating any reality uh, to it. And you know that's a, a cultural bias. I mean, that you know we, we hear that here in the West, but you know that's not necessarily true of other cultures. There's there's numerous other cultures in Japan, for example. Uh, they take you know generally take dreams uh, more seriously. And and every culture in the world has a, a subculture of, of people who who uh, dream a lot, who remember their dreams, and who see uh, symbolic uh, significance in it. Um, and get inspiration uh, in their lives from it. Um, so our culture tends to diminish, and uh, as much as it can, uh, the importance of dreams. And people aren't encouraged to remember them. There's there's some indigenous societies where the first thing um, every group, you know, the group does in the morning is everybody sits in a circle and they all discuss their dreams and, and what they mean and the importance of, of what they might mean. Dreams I think can can have symbolic significance. I mean, it's it's almost like a cliche that someone will tell somebody else a dream that they, you know, don't really see any symbolic significance in, but even the most, you know, (laughs) see somebody lacking insight can look at somebody else's dream and often say, Oh, well, that's because, you know, weren't you just saying that, you know, your your mother was being a little overbearing and maybe that's why, you know, suddenly it becomes so obvious they're like, oh, of course. And it's because dreams are often um, they're often expressing our blind spots, you know, the very aspects of our unconscious that we're not aware of. So there's often interesting uh, symbolism in dreams. And and that's important. And, you know, Freud and Jung and and other uh, psychoanalysts and psychologists have have stressed the importance of dreams in terms of understanding our unconscious. Lucid dreaming was uh, was made into a science. And, uh, during the 1970s by, uh, Keith Hearn and, uh, Stephen LaBerche, um, they both did experiments where they were able to show that they were uh, able to send signals from within the dream while they were dreaming. Um, prior to this, lucid dreaming had been, um, categorized as something, some kind of a cult phenomenon and wasn't taken seriously. And, um, And Stephen and Keith showed that um, you were able to signal from within the dream by uh, making certain eye movements. In other words, you could have a brain monitoring device, show that the person was dreaming, going through REM stages of sleep or whatever stage of sleep they were in. And then they could... um, very clearly signal by making sweeping movements with their eyes, you know, right, left, right, left, you know, that sort of thing. And that was the first scientific evidence that people were able to make, uh, were able to send conscious messages from within the dream. And um, since then, it's it's gotten uh, tremendously uh, more sophisticated. Um, At Max Planck's Institute in uh, Germany, they've done uh, numerous um, scientific studies with lucid dreaming showing Uh, where it's located, you know, what areas of the brain light up. It's primarily when the prefrontal cortex, an area in the the front of the brain, uh, becomes active while you're dreaming. And uh, they also have developed uh, techniques uh, using something called transcranial brain stimulation, where they apply a very mild electric current uh, to the scalp in front of the prefrontal cortex while someone's in REM REM sleep and can uh, trigger uh, lucid dreams around ninety percent of the time, eighty ninety percent wow. of the time. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it's really huge. So it's so uh, why does know. it why does it matter?
0: Why does it matter, David? About why should somebody care to lucid dream? Um, is there is there a value that it has in their waking life, or is it just something fun that they could do to express fantasies? Because I mean that's a really cool part, and that's why a lot of people get involved in lucid dreaming, from what I understand. But for those people that are looking at more of like a practical, rational pragmatic use for lucid dreaming and how that carries into their everyday waking life. How would you say
1: that would affect them? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Zach. So, so this is what lucid dreaming is good for. I can, I can give you a little list of things that it can be uh, used for. But first and foremost, and what attracts most people to lucid dreaming is just simply the aspect of fantasy fulfillment. And that's a very powerful lure into lucid dreaming. In a lucid dreaming, when you wake up in the dream and you realize that you're dreaming, it's an amazing experience, first of all, just to be able to look around, and see the world. It's almost like being on an acid trip. Colors are brighter, the details are incredible. You can't believe how solid and realistic everything looks. And then you have the ability to influence and do what you want in this dream without the biological or social consequences that we have to deal with in the material world. So you can fly, you can go underwater, you can fly into outer space, you can you know, have conversations with departed loved ones, you can make love to your favorite movie star, or your ideal lover. I mean, really your, your imagination is the only limit and people can spend years just you know, exploring these aspects of lucid dreaming, and for some people, that's enough. It's you know, it's like better going to the movies, being able to take part in these incredible time adventures. But really, that's just really the first step or the first phase of you know what you can do with lucid dreaming. Of um, more practical value is the fact that it has a therapeutic applications. Um, I describe in my book a number of um, anecdotes where people have been able to cure themselves of different um, disabilities, different injuries, different illnesses, um, infections in the body, you know, physical healing as, as well as, uh, you know, psychological. And you're a scientist,
0: right? So this isn't, this isn't just, um, you know, kind of wave the the divination stick and, you know, say a, say a law of attraction mantra and it just happens. I mean, this is, this is scientifically happening with people where they're experiencing, I, I know from, uh, from reading many, many books and from personal experience as well, that sometimes during a shamanic journey, uh, there's a healing that takes place somehow in this ecstatic realm and then comes back through that realm uh, into this everyday waking consciousness. And is that what you're saying can happen in lucid dreams as well?
1: oh yes absolutely and um and it can be it can be consciously done. People can go into a lucid dream with the intention of, of healing a particular injury or or healing um an illness or healing a trauma or or that sort of thing and people have reported uh great success with it. this unfortunately has not been. Seriously, scientifically studied yet, um, just simply because there just hasn't been available research yet. It's it's crying out to be researched. There's a few good uh, case studies that have been published in scientific journals, uh, but they're just anecdotal and they really haven't been um, carefully studied yet. But that's an area that's just crying out. I mean, there are many, many areas in lucid dream that haven't studied in terms of how people carry out tasks within the lucid dream and seeing that same parts of the brain light up. That, uh, you know, but in a you know, less active way, but the same areas of the brain light up that would light up when you're actually carrying out the task in physical reality. So you can actually improve skills. You can actually learn how to do skills better. And there is scientific evidence that shows that people that practice specific activities in the lucid dream then get better when they then perform the activity in, um, in physical material reality. So people can use it as a way of building skills, new techniques, practicing different things, practicing public speaking, for example. Um, People also use it as a way to enhance creativity. A lot of artists, a lot of writers um, use it, architects use it, use it as a way of helping to get ideas that, you know, for example, I knew an artist who talked to me who said they would go into an art gallery in the Lucid Dream and look at the paintings on the wall, and that's where they would get inspiration and ideas for their next paintings. And then probably finally, you know, lucid dreaming can be used as a technique for spiritual advancement. Um, It's been used in in shamanic and uh, religious traditions um, for thousands of years, especially Tibetan Buddhism. It's been used uh, for about 2,000 years as a a training technique um, so that people can and not only the idea is that if you learn how to become conscious in, in your dreams, then you can learn how to become conscious in what they call the Bardos or the after after death states, the states between uh, what they say are the states between death and rebirth and the new incarnation. So by hmm. practicing lucid, lucid dreaming, they say that you then gain some type of control in the after death realms and can then more consciously incarnate in your next lifetime. So that's a pretty wide range of, you know, That's a very
0: powerful thing you touched on right there. I mean, essentially what you're talking to or what you're speaking to is, is some way to achieve the elusive eternal life in a way, or at least a dramatically extended version of it. uh, If in fact people are able to transition through Bardo into another life, David, thank you for sharing all that. I want to touch on the fact that I haven't had a lucid dream in years and I was super bummed about this because I'd been reading your book and I'd been reading uh, Robert Wagoner's book, Lucid Dreaming. I read, uh, and you turned me on to her in this book, uh, Olga Karaditi, Entering the Circle. And uh, this is all since picking up your book maybe four months ago. I just kind of devoured all of these things and I hadn't had a lucid dream in years. I mean, I questioned whether I'd ever had one. It's been so long. And as luck would have it, I had a lucid dream last night. I was so happy, <laughs> uh, and so like right after I got so excited in it, and I and then when I got excited, I was driving a car in it, and I'm and I get excited because I realize I'm lucidly dreaming because the car's lifted so high off the ground, and then I'm dri- and then I'm driving the car and I'm looking at the at the you know the digital clock in the car, and uh, I see that there's a cop driving towards me, and I and I start to and I go well this is just a dream, and I go wait a second, this feels like MDMA. I think I'm high on MDMA and I forgot that I'm driving a car down my old street. And I go, no, wait a second. How do I tell this is a dream? And I start pulling on my fingers and they start turning into putty. And uh, and then I went into like this like void, right? This is like gray void, kind of like going off screen on a video game with the game genie. Like, you know, it's got a real glitchy. And then I woke up and I'm like super excited. I got to record it quick before I forget what was in the dream. So I'm going to record. it. I turn on my iPhone. I use your technique where I have my iPhone set on the recording thing. I turn my passcode and security off. So if someone steals my phone, they get to keep it because I I don't want to be punching in a passcode in the middle of the night. Uh, My lucid dreams or my dreaming has been more important. So I go to do that and it, And my phone's shooting those, like, you know, when you put congrats on Facebook and there's like celebration things, my phone's like just shooting those off like crazy. And I'm trying to like (laughs) record it and I'm saying it. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm still dreaming. And then I woke up again and actually recorded it. So it was kind of funny. The dream was even congratulating me. It was doing the congrats on my phone. I was so happy about this because I was going to interview you today. And one of the questions was going to be, how do I know that even lucid dreaming is possible? And this is not just your subjective experience and a bunch of delusional people. Um, and I could say that, you know, I, it took me months and uh, finally it did happen. And it was a very mystical experience. Uh, and today I kind of felt kind of out of body, a little bit like, oh, am I going to die at any moment? Am I even alive still? There was a lot of that coming up today. And I think in your book you touched on that and you said that some shamans believe or that uh, maybe this was from. Uh, Don Miguel or no Carlos Castaneda that lucid dreaming is you, you don't really start lucid dreaming or you do start lucid dreaming right about the same time as you stop fearing death because lucid dreaming and the experience of, of, of the fear of death are connected in some way. Can you touch on that? Gosh.
1: Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember, I remember that from the book and I, I thought that was an interesting idea. I'm, I'm not so sure if it's really true. I mean, I'm not so sure. I guess so Most people have a lucid dream at some point in their life, and most people are are scared of death, and I'm not sure that that transcending your your fear of death um, is a prerequisite for lucid dreaming, but I think it works the other way around pretty well. I think that by lucid dreaming more, um, you you begin to lose your fear of death, especially if you reach some of the more um, spiritual uh, states with it. Lucid dreaming, I mean, this is the thing. When you realize, when you wake up in a dream, and realize that you're dreaming, um, and you realize that the world around you, which was so incredibly realistic, is imposed completely entirely of your mind, it makes you then question the same thing about material reality, because you realize that your brain can create a, a, a virtual reality, you know, a simulated world in your mind that's every bit as real as anything you can imagine. So by waking up in a lucid dream, it sometimes can philosophically lead to the, the realization or the insight or the idea that um, you can wake up from physical reality in the same way. And that when you do, you realize hmm. that basically your whole life is kind of like a dream. And that's, a, that's, a common, uh, that's another common part of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, to see that um, your mind is, is creating reality, not only in the loose dream, but, but also right now creating a simulation in your mind that you're that you're taking to be real but it's really happening all inside your head it's happening inside your head in both cases but um, and this but is I think not that's
0: something that's... to believe this is something to have a direct experience of it's not something you go you know all is maya it's all an illusion you just walk around and say that this is an actual experience that people begin to have
1: firsthand
0: through direct experience through lucid dreaming through shamanic journeying or through
1: psychedelics is what oh saying, yeah right? right yeah yeah what i'm saying Yeah, exactly, Precisely. I mean, when you when you realize just how realistic of a simulated world your brain can create entirely from memory and imagination in a lucid dream, you realize that it could be doing the same thing right now. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, so, so yeah. So you, you wake up and wake up and ability. wake up. So, so But I found your story so fascinating, you know, about you having the lucid dream last night. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of people in your listening audience tonight or in this or this place uh, has, a, um, has a lucid dream because just talking about it, thinking about it, um, you know, discussing lucid dreaming increases the probability of uh, of having a lucid dream. We can talk about other techniques too for increasing lucid dreams.
0: Yeah, I think I want to close with the, some different techniques uh, and kind of advice that you have for people that are interested in taking this further. I think we'll leave them with that. But if we start going into the techniques, I think uh, it'll go in that, that direction um, and kind of stay there. Uh, but I do want to hear some techniques that would be good for lucid dreaming. And I know there are some, and I want to hear what ones have been most effective for the greatest number of people. I also wanted to touch a little bit, I wasn't going to, uh, but I feel called for some reason too. So I'm going to follow that intuition to touch a little bit on psychedelics and kind of my experience with them. And then kind of hear a little bit about maybe yours uh, in, 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 pertaining to lasting shifts in consciousness. For me, one of the main, Points that I, that I needed for healing. Like, I would smoke marijuana and have absolute panic attacks. Like, I would come out of the goic state of consciousness, back in, out, back in, back out, back in. Time would get distorted, have full panic attacks. It was a miserable experience, which then I avoided pretty much anything that made me uncomfortable. Uh, later in life, I got completely addicted to uh, opiates, oxycodone in order to be able to function. I, I just simply couldn't go to work. I couldn't drive in a car. I just, I couldn't get myself to do anything. I couldn't even get out of bed without it. That forced me into an initiation of sorts where I had experienced uh, Ibogaine, a boga. You, I think you talk about it in your book, using it uh, before going to sleep in small amounts to induce lucid dreaming. And I got to say that right. there was a terrifying, the, the whole experience wasn't super terrifying until the third day and I fell asleep And I was absolutely convinced that I was being, I was being held there by aliens being put into a capsule to live for all eternity, kind of like in the matrix where they were testing the degree of suffering that any human can endure. And then I would just be stuck there for all eternity. And I was like looking for a way to kill myself before I got put into this capsule. And thankfully I, like people came to my aid and I, that, that went away and I don't want to discourage anyone from taking Ibogaine because that experience happened for me. Because that was a very pivotal moment for me. And I, you, you remember bad dreams probably more than good dreams. And you remember terrifying experiences uh, better than probably really pleasant, easygoing, average everyday Tuesday experiences. And what I found later that, that the symbolism for this was, for me, having an inner child that was essentially encapsulated in a traumatized flesh, like in my traumatized body. Uh, in Bessel van der Kolk's book, Body Keeps the Score, he talks about how trauma is stored in your body. And I thankfully came across a medicine called MDMA, and that completely transformed my life. I had a, a, a childhood with a lot of abuse, lived in group homes, and just really unpleasant, crazy things. Grew up as, you know, the white kid in the in the kind of the projects, ghetto areas of, you know, Oakland and Hayward, and uh, things were not super easy growing up. But MDMA gave me this firsthand experience of love that I'd never felt before. I, I, I don't remember ever feeling that. And I was absolutely terrified as it was coming on because I thought I was dying. But that, that experience stuck with me. And just recently, I, 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 I uh, had an experience with something called 5-MEO-DMT, which is, uh, comes from a bufo toad. And during this experience, I had realized there was a complete dis- dissolution of the ego. I didn't know who I was. I was everything. And I, and I actually like reconstituted myself back into my body differently than I was before. And I'm almost thinking that I came back into a different dimension or world. I know that sounds crazy, maybe to many people that would be listening to this. But have you had any experiences like that, that have had that have so profoundly shifted the way that you viewed the world? And if so, maybe what are two of those experiences if if you had to just for sake of time?
1: Gosh, I mean, so many thoughts came as you were saying all that, but let's um, see what I can remember and what I can go from that. One of the things that I wanted to touch on, you said that um, I found that so fascinating, that, that Ibogaine, was that, was that um, Iboga or Ibogaine that you had Um I, I think it might have been
0: a mixture of both, but it was for sure the Ibogaine HCL. I didn't huh. take it in the best environment. I wouldn't recommend somebody go take it where I did. I was the only person that had was not on opiates at the time. I, I like cold turkey the opiates. It was a miserable experience of vomiting yeah. and sweating and kratom enemas because I couldn't drink it anymore because so I was vomiting it up. It was just, I mean, and I went through that miserable experiences over and over. It was like hell. Like I would get, take opiates so I could make enough money to eat and live. And then yeah. I like, would make enough to like survive. And then everything is <laughs> what's weird is that I could make a lot of money or none at all. Like there was actually no in between for me. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question, but this is a highly like, yeah, yeah, highly yeah, you know, thing now.
1: Sure. Sure. No, I, yeah, I understand. Um, no, I just, one of the things I just wanted to mention when you uh, brought that up was, uh, I had a, an experience in my uh, early twenties, where I smoked uh, three large lungfuls of uh, dimethyltryptamine uh, DMT and uh, found myself in a hyperspatial dimension where a uh, a super intelligent, uh, super powerful being of some sort was experimenting on me. And uh, what uh, he seemed to be doing was testing my ability to handle either excruciating pain or suffering or experiencing. extraordinary ecstasy and pleasure it was like tuning these dials and like seeing just Mm. how much i could take of you know how much ecstasy Mm. how much suffering how much and i was just like screaming and like ah this is horrible and oh my god this is just wonderful and ah it's like going back and forth (laughs) and i felt this completely at the mercy of this being that was just you know controlling these uh, this dial that was uh that was making me feel all these feelings and and intensities that are just beyond anything a human can experience. I mean, just extraordinarily, extremely intense. I'm not so sure that that experience transformed me uh, that much, except in the sense that on a philosophical level that I then uh, expanded my notion of how big reality was. And that there were probably other uh, dimensions of reality. Um, I've had experiences with NDMA uh, with that um, helped me to heal from uh, traumas that I had. Um, earlier, but uh, never fully in a complete way. I was, uh, I was uh, traumatized as a child. I was sexually abused when I was very young at the age of three. And um, it took me many years and many psychedelic sessions to, to really work through all that. Um, the MDMA experiences helped. MDMA was especially helpful when I would go through um, grief periods with uh, with breakups from girlfriends or uh, losing losing someone, it it, it it was tremendously helpful in going not only getting relief from the the pain of the grief, but also helpful in terms of getting insight and and that would help me after the experience uh, wore off. But I think that the the psychedelic that had the most actual transformative effect on my life was uh, was going down to Peru and uh, doing ayahuasca. And, um, hmm. you know, I, I had numerous experiences before that, uh, you know, using DMT with harmaline, and and I thought that was ayahuasca. <laughs> you know, and, Have you worked uh, with the
0: 5-MAO bufo to- toad? The
1: 5-MAO a, a, bufo toad? A little bit, not enough, not enough. I haven't hmm. had um, very, very, I haven't had strong enough dosages to go completely into the unit of experience, but I have had some experience with it and for my for me, my experience of doing five Meo DMt was was like doing NMDMT without the visuals. <laughs> That's like what it felt like It was like sort of the experience of it without you know all the wild visuals that I got with, uh, with NNDMT. Um, I haven't done I guess a high enough dosage of it yet to have the unit of experience that everyone talks about. but, uh, but doing ayahuasca um, down in the Amazon was what, what really transformed me. That was what really allowed me to finally you know relive and reintegrate, uh, completely um, you know heal the, uh, the trauma trauma that I experienced as a child and um, and after that um, I, was, I was really really uh, really a different person when I went into the experience, the, the voice of the ayahuasca, you know, had, had said to me, you know, so, so, so I hear you want to, you know, heal this, uh, this, these anxieties you have and this trauma and this fear. And it was like, and I was like, yes. And it was like, okay, well, come on, we're taking you to warrior school. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> I, was like <laughs> I remember right after like, you know, four hours into like, you know, really, really horrific things, like all the things I feared the most. And like with this sort of came like less and less, fear reactions to it and by the end of the experience i was like completely devoid of any fear in my life you know wasn't afraid of anything and Mm -hmm. i did not tell this experience to anyone for like at least six weeks because i was so afraid i was going to tell it to people and it would wear off and then i would look really stupid you know right yeah but um Mm -hmm. but it really never did wear off there there really was a, a transformation something really happened on that ayahuasca experience and i really think that it was because there's a i don't know if you've ever done ayahuasca or not but ayahuasca there's like an intelligence there's a built-in shaman there is some kind of higher intelligence plant wisdom or something that seems Mm -hmm. to know how to find the areas that need healing the parts of you that are you know wounded and traumatized and it knows how to stitch you back together it is incredible it's an amazing experience and that to me was was by far, it was almost like every other psychedelic experience in my life was just a prerequisite, really, to the ayahuasca Mm. experience, which was like the mother of all psychedelic experiences. It was like it had elements of MDMA and it had elements of mushrooms, elements of LSD. It was a little bit like all of them, but just way more powerful than all of them. You know, it's like you're used to seeing, like when you move your hand on LSD and you see the trails, like I was used to that, but when you move your hand on ayahuasca, those trails suddenly became bejeweled with a thousand scenes going on inside of them, and I and mean, we just so much. It <laughs> sounds, so like, so much a, sounds like it sounds like a
0: boga to me a little bit. Boga was
1: very disorienting uh, in that yeah, way. I, yeah, I, I have not had experience with with my boga. The experiences that I talked about in my book were um, anecdotes that someone else had given me. A friend of mine in Italy who had been using micro microdosing it, and uh, said okay. that uh, lucid dreaming became a, um, uh, a nightly occurrence for him while he was uh, micro-testing iboga. I, I wanted iboga to touch on a...
0: something as you, as you say all of this. I wanted to touch on, uh, I, I run into a lot of people that I just know personally, and they're afraid, they know they need healing, and they are afraid to work with any of these medicines because many of them believe that they have addictive tendencies, and they probably have addictive tendencies. I might even agree with many of them. Uh, because they're trying to fill an actual need with false replacements rather than actually doing healing. They're using numbing agents and they're becoming addicted to the numbing agents. So they fear trying something like ayahuasca or MDMA. I actually know a friend of mine who tried MDMA and it was super healing for him, changed his whole life. And he's terrified to do it again because of how profound and powerful it was. He's actually scared to do it again. What I wanted to touch on is a lot of people that really need healing, they fear that they have addictive personalities because they're meeting real needs with false replacements or numbing agents. And so they do experience that they're addicted to things like they're addicted to alcohol or addicted to opiates or addicted to pornography or whatever it is to distract themselves from feeling like crap. And they also, those same people that could benefit from the healing modalities that these plant medicines and MDMA, for example, uh, that isn't the plant, well, Sassafras is, but they fear taking any of these medicines, that they're going to get hooked on this new medicine.
1: Well, okay. Um, First of all, psychedelic drugs are largely used to help people with with addiction. That's one of the things they're used for. They're 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 pretty hard to get addicted to a psychedelic drug. Um, It's really not very pleasant. The side effects tend to increase. And you know, psychedelic drugs aren't something that generally makes you feel good in in general. MDMA is is kind of a bit of an exception, but if you do MDMA regularly, the side effects tend to increase and the uh, positive effects uh, tend to decrease. So there's there's really not a lot of uh, there's really not a lot of concern about becoming addicted to psychedelic drugs. People that use ayahuasca, uh, for example, um, there's almost no alcoholism or uh, no addiction or uh, tobacco use or I'm sorry, like tobacco addiction with uh, they use tobacco medicinally as part of the ayahuasca ceremonies. But but they've actually done studies that show that ayahuasca um, prevents people from being addicted if they, if they use it regularly. Um, and of course, as you know, ibogaine is used uh, specifically to help people stop uh, opiate addiction and other addictions. So psychedelic drugs, by their very nature, tend to break um, you know uh, patterns in the mind. They don't usually have that potential for addiction, but they're also, you know, I have to add, they're not necessarily healing either. They're most healing um, when they're used in a therapeutic context. So ayahuasca being used with a with a, you know, with a shaman who's, a, who's a properly educated or um, MDMA or LSD or psilocybin with a psychotherapist, you know, the way that uh, MAPS and the Hefter Foundation and the Beckley Foundation is promoting right now. I think that that it's the combination of psychotherapy uh, with a a psychedelic that really has the most uh, powerful uh, healing potential. And when it's done in a safe environment, you know, with a psychotherapist, um, I think the person has a lot more, you know, confidence in the experience, you know, if there's something, if they run into any kind of difficult or uh, challenging material that they have someone there to help them with it, and uh, so I think that's really the the best place for people to do these sorts of things, and um, and also for someone who has never experienced a psychedelic um, and who wants to experience these altered states of consciousness, um, there are ways to do it without drugs that are a little gentler. You know, meditation is obvious. Isolation type. The holotropic breathwork, yes, you know, of course, is a very... But it's a holotropic breathwork. is a lot of work. It's really hard. I don't know if you've tried it. Not, not I have. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Not easy>. It takes <laughs> a lot of work. So you got to really want to tank. have that experience. You do. Um, and it is worth it. It really is amazing. Um, but you can go into a flotation tank or an isolation tank and go into a, an LSD-like or a ketamine-like state uh, or a lucid dream-like state uh, for a couple hours. Without taking any drug and, and uh, coming out and feeling uh, perfectly relaxed, so um, so that was something that I would recommend if somebody wants to uh, experience these other states without uh, the commitment of uh, of taking a drug. And of course, these drugs are illegal, and you know the fact that they're illegal, you know, adds levels of paranoia, and people are never really sure what they're getting if the purity is correct and all these things. And, so that's why it's sometimes a good idea if you're, if you're really serious and if you have the money to go someplace where these things are legal, you know, you can go to Jamaica or to Holland and uh, and have a legal, um, you know, group run, you know, magic mushroom ceremony, or you can go down to Peru and, you know, and have an ayahuasca ceremony or, or an iboga ceremony. I think that doing it with somebody who is a professional and who has got experience and could help if there's a... You know, challenges come up, it's probably the best way for someone who's uh, not that experienced or who's uh, reluctant uh, to embark on these uh, wild states of consciousness. Yeah, it's fascinating. And thank you for saying that,
0: David. Um, it's fascinating with running Ecstatic Dance. Uh, obviously, this is done in a place where there is no drug use allowed, no alcohol use allowed. Everybody comes in 100% completely of sound mind and body. It's actually done in a temple. And uh, the music has no curse words or any negative, like, any negative lyrics. And it, we f- I find, and so do others, that it's hard to get people to come to one of these. And it's, and it's fascinating because it's, you wouldn't think it'd be hard, but it's almost like there's a realness and there's a depth that happens, at least at our dance. And I know some dancers are really, really powerful like this. There's real healing happening and people feel afraid to come. Uh, Or they just find themselves not able to come. And uh, it's a real fascinating, fascinating thing to watch. Uh, Because you think it would just be everybody that does yoga would just love to come check this out. It totally doesn't happen that way. Almost nobody comes until they're ready and you could see it. I wanted to touch on where we, and end maybe with this is, uh, because we're running out of time, is aside from obviously like ecstatic dancing being one of the portals using, I mean, shamans have used the drum, or, you know, since since somebody could bang sticks against something uh, in order to do, I think what it's called is uh, audio, what is it called? Uh, audio driving. The drumming changes the brain waves, and you're essentially able to reach uh, ecstatic states of consciousness through that. And I believe that ecstatic dance uses large subwoofers and speakers and, you know, these types of music to also reach those states. And we had touched on lucid dreamings as, as one of the gateways. We touched on psychedelics as another one of the gateways. I'd like to touch on some techniques that we could that somebody could use just listening to this one audio uh, about how they could start to experience lucid dreaming or invite that into their lives. Uh, aside from reading
1: your book, Dreaming Wide Awake, which I can't
0: recommend enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I'd be happy to discuss a few techniques. Let me also before I discuss the lucid dreaming techniques, let me just say that um, there are there are there are technologies called light and sound machines that um, little goggles that you wear and little headphones that um, produce um, electronic kind of like deep sounds and light flashes that are um, beeping at a frequency that um, mimics your uh, alpha waves, your beta waves, theta waves, delta waves, your different brainwave frequencies in the brain. And when these things start, um, these electronic sounds start beeping in your, in your ears, your brain starts to mimic um, the patterns. It's a process called entrainment, and you can then go into some of these deeper, you know, go from a beta to an alpha state, which is a more relaxed state, or into some of the more deeper states like theta and delta, which are deep states that are either encountered in very deep meditation or in, or in deep sleep. So that's another another possibility for people that are interested in uh, in attaining some of those states without drugs. Um, lucid dreaming um, for people that are interested in lucid dreaming. First of all, it's, I wouldn't be surprised at the number of people have lucid dreams just from listening uh, to this talk because as I mentioned earlier just talking and thinking about it is one of the things that triggers it Um, probably the first thing you want to do if you really want to embark on lucid dreaming in your life is start keeping a dream journal start writing down your dreams start writing down whatever you can when you wake up in the middle of the night or when you wake up first thing in the morning before you do anything else write down whatever you remember from the dream even if it's just a little snippet or just one line write that down even if you can't remember any of the details, then just write down the feeling that you have um, Mm -hmm. from the dream. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll find that the more attention you pay, the more you write these things down, the more it starts coming to you. Uh, The more attention you pay to your dreams, the more they'll start revealing themselves to you. And you want to do this because if you uh, have a lucid dream, you want to at least remember it. So you want to first increase your dream recall and increase your attention to your dreams. That's really the the first and most important thing to start doing. Next, probably the technique that has helped me the most and uh, a lot of other people that I've spoken to is to get into the habit of asking yourself that all important question, am I dreaming right now? You wanna get into the habit of asking yourself that question, like every half hour, every hour, set your alarm clock, you know, every time it goes off, ask yourself, am I dreaming right now? Am I dreaming right now? And when you ask yourself that question, you have to answer it sincerely. You cannot just flippantly say, "Oh, of course I'm not dreaming," because you're going to carry that over into your dream state. And say, oh, of course <laughs> I'm not. Dreaming when you're dreaming, what you want to do is, is when you is is <laughs> what you want to do is when you ask yourself that question: "Am I dreaming right now?" You want to take what's called a reality test. Okay, there are differences between material reality, waking reality and the dream world. Um, One of the primary differences is it's much more mutable in the dream world. So if you pick up a book or a piece of paper with some written text on it, look at what those words say, look away from, memorize what they say, look away, and then look back. In a lucid dream, those words will change almost every time. In fact, if you just stare at words in a lucid dream, they'll often morph before your eyes. So get into the habit. Of asking yourself, am I dreaming right now while you're awake? And then look at something written, memorize, look away. Get into the habit of doing that regularly. Another good reality test is uh, to hold your nostrils closed and try to breathe through your nostrils. Okay, so you ask yourself, am I dreaming right now? And try to test it by pinching your nostrils and seeing if you can breathe through your nostrils. Of course, in waking reality, you won't be able to do it, but there's a glitch in the dream matrix that allows you to easily. Through your nostrils because your your physical nose is not being touched at all. So uh, once you get into the habit of doing that, you're going to find uh, sooner or later that you're going to have it happen in a dream, and you're going to be tremendously surprised because you're going to think that you were awake when you took that test, and you're going to be like, "Oh my God, I'm dreaming." Um, <laughs> the, big, the, the biggest problem people run into though is that they get too excited. Oh my God, yes. I'm dreaming! I'm dreaming! And they, and, they, and they wake up right away. So you want to remain calm. You know, meditation helps breathing slowly and you know not getting too excited in the dream is really one of the first stages of, of maintaining it. The other techniques that I use that I found to be uh, really helpful is to set your alarm clock around uh, three hours before you normally wake up. Get up for around half an hour, walk around a little bit, go to the bathroom, maybe do a little mild exercise, read a little bit, do something to get your mind kind of actively engaged, um, mm. and then go back to sleep. And when you go back to sleep. Uh, repeat the phrase, the affirmation, to yourself. The next time I'm dreaming, I'm going to remember to recognize that I'm dreaming. The next time that I'm dreaming, I'm going to remember to recognize that I'm dreaming, and keep saying that to yourself as you're as you're falling asleep. If you follow those two simple techniques of uh, waking up a couple hours early, and, you know, and then practicing the affirmation, uh, scientific studies have shown that your chances of having a lucid dream um, go up by around 50 percent. Um, If you combine these different techniques that I've just described, the dream journal, the, uh, you know, reality testing, am I in a dream right now, the waking up early, the affirmations, if you start doing, start mixing and matching all these different techniques regularly, start doing them every day, most people have a lucid dream uh, within a week or two, okay? I also talk in my book, I have a whole chapter on uh, different supplements you can take that can also help, nutritional supplements, herbal supplements, Um, velvet bean is one. Uh galantamine is another. Um, these are some things that people have found to, um, to help trigger lucid dreaming. So there's a lot of different uh, techniques and different things you can use. And when you combine them together and really think about it a lot and read books on lucid dreaming, um, you'll find it's almost uh, inevitable to have a lucid dream. And then, be- you know, before you start doing all this, you should figure out what you want to do in the lucid dream when you get there. So when you're there, figure out, you know, beforehand what you want to do so you're not in the lucid dream deciding. What should I do now? Because you don't have that much time. Mm-hmm. Set an intention before you before you go into it. So and when you become lucid, you can carry it out, and uh, and then it's wide open skies from there.
0: <laughs> how many lucid dreams do you have a month right now, David? Or on, during your peak and
1: pretty average? What is what?
0: How many do you do? You right
1: now, so I, right now, I personally have maybe around two lucid dreams a month. I find that lucid dreams. Lucid dreaming is more like physical exercise than it is like riding a bicycle. In other words, like if you ride a bicycle and you learn how to do it, you just always remember how to do it. Lucid dreaming is the kind of thing where you have to keep you doing these techniques. You don't keep it up. You will know, they'll start to drop off. So it's something that you have to continuously practice these techniques. And at different periods of my life, I, I practice them more uh, more intensely than others. There have been periods where I was having lucid dreams, you know, several times a week or almost every day. Um, But right now it's it's occurring, I guess, maybe around twice a month or so.
0: You want to hear of a random synchronicity, David? One of these beautiful things that just sounds
1: too crazy to be
0: true? Absolutely. When I bought your book, I was in Kauai. I bought it because Madeline, my partner, had a lucid dream. And I said, oh, my gosh, I got to see if there's something on this. I actually have time to read right now. I have time to like do this dream thing. And so I, I I found your book online. I didn't hear of it before and uh, purchased it, and I didn't have a Kindle at the time, and there was no audiobook, which I could see why, and I just grabbed, I was staying at somebody's house, and they had a bunch of tarot card decks, and I just grabbed a card at complete random to throw into the book, and I never thought about it, and you just mentioned it, uh, what you just said right now about the bicycle and working out, and the card is a uni- in a unicorn deck, totally not intentional, didn't pick from that deck for any reason, and the card is practice. The best way to get good at a skill is to practice. Practice, practice until you get it right. (laughs) Out of all the cards to pull from, (laughs) that's the card that I put in. Totally unintentional.
1: (laughs) Couldn't uh, be more appropriate. Couldn't be more appropriate.
0: (laughs) It's one of of those synchronistic uh, synchronistic, uh, things that just go, oh my gosh, there's there's some intelligence that is there, you know, that somehow knew to do that and that it was all planned and orchestrated and that happened. It's like, Oh my gosh, it all makes sense. So, uh, thank you, David. Uh, anything we want to close with?
1: Um, this has been really wonderful. Let's definitely do it again sometime. You asked great questions. Um, people who are interested in my books, um, my website is www.davidjbrown.com. My, my newest book is a uh, women of visionary art collection of interviews that I did with uh, women uh, women visionary artists and uh, with my partner, um, Rebecca Hill. And it has uh, an abundant, a treasure of beautiful it's a coffee table art book. And um, my books are available on Amazon. And anyone who wants to uh, reach me or interact with me, they can uh, find me on Facebook.
0: Beautiful. And I have your book, Women of Visionary Art, right here. I'm going to bring it to the dance and put it on the altar space. I think it's gonna be perfect for that, that whole coffee table. is also an altar table book. And uh, maybe we'll finish with the final thing is, I wanted to know if, uh, if you were to do some type of workshop or if you've done workshops, like what length have they
1: been and what have you spoken or taught on? Um, I've done workshops on many different things. Um, I do workshops on uh, lucid dreaming. I do workshops on psychedelic navigation. I do workshops on what I've learned from all the people that I uh, interviewed over the years and the research that I've done, uh, alternative research. Um, Generally do workshops that are are a couple of hours. That's my average. I have done some longer ones. The longest one I've I've ever done is just an overnight workshop. But um, but I'm always happy to do more. And uh, lucid dreaming is the thing that I'm um, always the most happy to, to speak about and do workshops with.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, David. We'll talk soon. Okay, thank you, Zach. You have a great night. Take care, bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye for now.